Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 40 for April 28th, 2011. This is our 17th episode of the post-motion picture era, so we are actually closing out the three continuities that we've been covering, uh, that being the original Marvel run, uh, the comic strip run that was uh, in your local newspapers, and Marvel's Untold Voyages last issue of all three of those um, series is yes rounding closing out a uh, a nice series of adventures with Kirk Spock and the rest of the kids and it's kind of cool how all three of these do kind of flow together so that they do I mean obviously all three companies knew that they were this would be their last issue of this era so I think they all kind of you know in their eyes finished off the series pretty well. Right. Particularly the um, Untold Voyages. Right. And the comic strip. Yeah. But y- you would think that Marvel number 18, they, they, they knew that it was going to be their last issue, but it, it does just seem like a random, normal episode of the month kind of thing. Right. And not an incredibly good one either. Okay, but not incredibly good. Yeah, out of these three, it's my least favorite. Yep. So we'll do that one first. How's that, Ken? Perfect. Let's get the, uh, not the bit, not the worst, but the least good. Exactly. Take care of up front. Right. Okay. So, as Donovan said, Star Trek, issue number 18, titled A Thousand Deaths. Published date, February 1982. Creative team is the writer J.M. Demetrius, artist Joe Brzezowski, inkers Sal Trepani, colors letterer Shelley Lieferman, editor is Al Milgram, and the editor in chief Jim Shooter. Cover shows Kirk and Spock facing each other with their heads quite close. A squiggly line in some kind of curvy infinity pattern supports the idea that their minds are somehow linked. Text on the bottom of the cover says, A Meeting of the Minds. Text higher up on the page says, Special Last Issue. Collector's Item. The inside title page, as usual, is made up of one full-page panel. Kirk is bouncing shirtless and high on a trampoline. He is interrupted by Spock's voice over the intercom, asking him to come to the bridge to see something incredible. Cut to the external view of the Enterprise approaching a huge planet-sized spherical spaceship whose surface surface is a jumbled mess of buildings, spheres, and other shapes. Spock estimates it's 20.9 times the size of Earth. As they try to figure out what the great ship is, Small floating spheres appear on the bridge and begin examining the crew. Suddenly, they stop at Kirk and Spock and whisk the two away. 
they reappear on the alien sphere in front of a huge robot called the Sustainer. It is not... Unfortunately, the Sustainer is not very good at answering Kirk and Spock's questions, but it does say simply that one of them will return to the Enterprise and the other will die. Slowly, the robot and the room they are in fades away and is replaced by the ocean and a tall ship named the HMS Enterprise. Kirk finds out he is the captain from the crew that tells him that they are being attacked by pirates. Parts of the ship go flying as cannonballs impact amidships as well as at the masts. The pirates swing aboard the ship on ropes and take the ship. They tell Kirk that he must fight to the death against their man, who turns out to be Spock. Instead, they both fight the pirates together. One of the masts that was damaged from the gunshot fire, the cannon fire, crackles and comes clean away down, heading straight for Spock. Kirk hurls himself at Spock, knocks him to safety, and is killed by the falling mast. Spock picks up, his, picks up and carries his dead friend as the scene changes back to the familiar room where the sustainer stands. The robot tells Spock the single required life has been taken so he can return to the Enterprise. Spock is hesitant, so the robot tells him that if he stays, he has the ability to bring Kirk back from the dead. Meanwhile, the Enterprise, still held in place by the alien tractor beam, Scotty and McCoy are arguing over how to get Kirk and Spock back. Harsh words from McCoy question Scotty's competence. In the end, there is nothing they can do at the moment, and Scotty says McCoy is no longer required on the bridge. Back on the alien planet ship, Kirk is brought back to life painfully. Kirk and Spock know it's another trick, but they escape the locked room they are in and attempt to flee into the open passageways of the huge planet ship. While trying to traverse a support that connects two buildings, the support mysteriously crumbles and the pair begin to drop. Spock is able to grab Kirk and boost him to safety while Spock plunges to his death. Kirk finds himself again with the sustainer who tells him not to mourn Spock since the robot will resurrect him. He does so when the three stand together. This time, the sustainer says the Enterprise and all her crew will perish unless Kirk or Spock gives up their lives for keeps, no resurrections. Spock puts Kirk out with a Vulcan neck pinch and offers himself. Just as the huge rob- robot is about to crush Spock, Kirk fights to consciousness and knocks Spock out of the way. The sustainer says playtime is over and tells the dynamic duo the story of his makers, named the Laissez-Berserk. They were brilliant and advanced people, but they were morally bankrupt, a totally self-centered society that killed off most of their number through war and other conflicts. In a rare feat of cooperation, they built the world ship and the sustainer to watch over it while the population, or what was left of it, slept as they traveled to a new world to colonize. The sustainer knew that even when they reached an an acceptable world, that the world would probably fail unless a true sense of selflessness could be instilled into the laissez-berserk people. 
The robot chose the Enterprise crew, and Kirk and Spock in particular, to be the teachers. At the moment Kirk and Spock made their sacrifices, the robot tapped into their psyches and transferred it to the sleeping Laissez Berserk. Kirk and Spock, having completed their unwitting aid, beamed back to the Enterprise and streaked on to their next adventure with a good feeling that they helped by honestly sharing a bit of who they were that will help that society develop strongly. The end. So good thing they didn't find the Klingons first. <laughs> yeah, they would have been kind of, kind of had problems. They would have had problems with that. So all they had to do was find some moral people and then uh, read their minds and then push that <clears throat> selflessness feelings to the sleeping, um, the sleeping aliens. Yeah, yeah. Th- this is this is an amazing Godzilla-sized robot. <laughs> who not only surpasses his creators in in knowing understanding morality and knowing right from wrong and knowing what his people need but it's able to <laughs> to to do this to implant it to infuse it into these people's uh all of them infuse it into all of their uh psyches it's just uh quite an amazing robot yeah yeah, and he can create holodeck type environments with robotic pirates. Right. He and, was amazing. And, and he was amazing. And actually uh, uh, paint these scenarios where people actually die. So the safeguards are definitely turned off. And then the big trick is he can bring people back to life. <laughs> Which is amazing because if you have the technology to bring people back to life, I mean, they talked about losing. Uh, like like billions of people uh, in their population. So uh, if you can bring people back to life, well, just bring them back to life and let them let them be bad people with each other. Right? Yeah, I think if you could bring people back to life, you're. Uh, I mean, you would automatically, or not at least automatically, but over time, you would become callous towards death, and I mean, it wouldn't mean anything to you anymore. Right. Right. Just like, you know, vampires. That's that's kind of the the big storyline as far as or at least a storyline they use a lot in vampire stories is that, you know, these people have been alive hundreds of years, they can't die, so they don't treat death as any type of real consequence. Right. So yep. I don't know. And they take lives and um something I thought was pretty cool in the Anne Rice stories, um, is even though these people live forever they're still subject to human frailties mentally. And uh, Lestat in particular, um, well, do you, do you remember the movie um, Interview with the Vampire? Or maybe yeah. you read the book? I have read the book and I've seen the movie. Okay. Well, I thought it was pretty cool that they had... Um, I, 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 I'm sorry for taking this off in this direction. But <laughs> I thought it was pretty cool how basically, you know... As people get older and and aged, I mean, they kind of lose their spark. They kind of, you know, at least most people anyway. Um, they they lose their edge. They lose their 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 lust for life, whatever. And uh, and so it was kind of interesting to say, hey, these are still people in the end, and they could be uh, susceptible to those same kind of things, even though they live, uh, you know, easily uh, hundreds and two hundred and whatever number of years. 
So I thought that was kind of interesting. Right. So, so the best way to revitalize your youth, if you're a vampire, is to then become a rock band singer. Nah. <laughs> the second movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah I don't, so, I don't I mean, know. That they... makes complete sense. Well, I was thinking more of the the first <laughs> movie and probably the first book, uh, right? Where at the end he was like, you know, he was just like a, like a nutball in a house, and right. I, as far as I could tell, he wasn't feeding anymore, or whatever, whatever. Uh, but then he got some pizzazz back at the end uh, by killing somebody. I forgot exactly. Well, he kills the uh, reporter there. The at reporter, the end. right? Because he wants him to. That's another interesting theme. Anyway, um, that's the Renfield syndrome. Ah, uh, Renfield. Right. Yes. So, I mean, all, all those plot points I think you pointed out, I think, are also in in Dracula. Because yeah. I always felt like Dracula too was just do, going through the motions, and he didn't really care anymore until he, you know, finds that one girl that he. You know. Well, okay, so you're talking about the Coppola movie? Well, the the Bram Stoker novel. Oh, then I never read the novel. But oh, okay. I mean, in the in the old uh, Dracula, the the 1930 whatever Bela Lugosi movie, right? Um, I I didn't have the impression they got into any of that kind of thing. I mean, it seemed like you know Dracula was around forever, and he's he's just having a grand old time being a vampire guy. Mm. Uh, I mean, he dug the chick, yeah, but. Uh, well, in the in the book, he he, you know, he he has his you know castle or whatever in in Transylvania, and then I mean, then he like basically risks it all so that he can go and chase this one girl to London or wherever they go to. I forgot. Um, I mean, so I mean, it was like he finally got a little spark of life in him, and he had oh, to go out of his his comfort yeah. zone to to have it or whatever. So oh, that's cool. I mean, it was it's kind of a cool cool thought that, you know, somebody I don't know, has nothing to do with Star Trek, so I guess we should get back on this. Yeah, we should stop talking about that. So <laughs> let me let me just talk about another thing that keeps getting reused. Um, this storyline, period. Uh, there was a original Trek series, I think uh, a third, third season, called The Empath, where basically um, there's, a th- there's an ultra-powerful third party who's bringing members of the Enterprise crew to teach um, another an, uh, um, a lesser being whatever, in this case a, a, a very pretty lady um, the virtues of self-sacrifice to help save her people so uh, in that one McCoy was almost killed um, which again the good doctor used his hypo to, to knock Spock out um, and then did Spock not Kirk out. Well, whatever. The, the main point is, there's like self-sacrifice all over the place. And then uh, McCoy almost dies. Where in this one, everybody's dying and everybody's getting resurrected. So there, there, There's a lot of... It seems like a retread of the Empath episode in some ways. Right. Yeah, and wasn't the child episode, the one where Troy gets a baby from an alien, wasn't that kind of the same thing too? That the that the entity wanted to be born as a human or or whatever so that it could get the moralities and things of of humans or am I, I misremembering that one I don't remember that one Yeah, it was like the first episode of season 2 on the next generation Cool. 
and I might be misremembering, but she basically no, gets she basically gets she has the baby, and um, so she's pregnant. It just yeah, it, the story starts off with the Enterprise, and then you see this little glowing light, you know, flying towards the Enterprise, and then it comes into Troy's room and impregnates her. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> the Immaculate Conception, too. Right. And and that story was actually originally written for Star Trek Phase Two, the mm-hmm. the second TV series that got canceled. And uh, but in the original outline, it was Ilya who would have the baby. Huh. But then when her character died off in Star Trek the Motion Picture, and they still had this storyline laying around, they they did it for Next Generation. Hmm. But I may be remiss remembering as to why the the baby actually wanted to do it. I'll have to look it up. <laughs> okay, cool. So it's uh, it's a theme that's been used. Yeah. Um. <sighs> yeah. Uh, I got a comment. Pirates again? Again? <laughs> did, did did these Marvel guys not learn from Gold Key? So you're talking about Gold Key number twelve? Oh, you remember the number? Yeah, okay. we'll be uh, we have it on the docket to review it in episode forty three. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. So in that so, one. In Kirk that one, fight space pirates. Exactly. Well, in that one, uh, the whole, yeah, the whole issue had space pirates. In this one, luckily, it was a short bit of pirate stuff. But they're wearing the same costumes, so at least they were able to reuse those costumes. Well, Spock is. <laughs> the, 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 the the striped, you know, uh, horizontal striped, uh, swabby, short uh, t-shirt kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Well, Kirk's kind of dressed a little blackbeardy. Or what was his name? <laughs> his name, uh, Black Nova. Was that his Black, name? Uh, something like that. Something like that. Yeah, we'll get to it in a couple episodes when we review it proper. There you go. But uh, that was published before this one, and it's like, come on, pirates. But that's fine. Whatever. It's, it's a short. It's a. It's a short bit. It's only a few pages long. Right. I, I like to think that uh, that the uh, when they talk about how the this probe read Kirk's mind and came up with this scenario. I like to think that that's what it actually picked up on. It was remembering Gold Key Number Twelve and <laughs> created this this fantasy for him. Uh, <laughs> great. But so, at least they they were on the on on a real sea, well, a yeah, sea, as right. opposed to traveling through the Caribbean of the spa- of space. <laughs> so uh, this ship is twenty point six times the size of Earth. That's what it said, and it's and I was moving thinking... at like warp seventeen. Yeah, yeah, dude, that's huge. It's very huge. I mean, it's like Jupiter huge. I mean, I, I don't remember exactly how big. I, I mean, Jupiter is much bigger than the Earth, but it's like, how? That's huge. Now, 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 mind you, if you've got to house millions of people, okay, that are in cryogenic sleep, but do you need to be twenty times the size of Earth? I think it's a little bit overkill. Plus, what were? Yeah, I don't know. It. It's funny because we're reading this, and obviously we've seen the Borg. Um, but the the ship kind of reminded me of like a Borg type vessel. Uh, you know, it's round instead of square, but it's still huge, and it's all you know robotic looking. I mean, this one kind of looks more like who's that painter that paints everything to with weird perspectives? Um, Hesher. Yeah, Hesher. No, no, Hesher. 
I mean, the inside of the ship looks like a Hesher painting to me. Right, yeah. Um, there are parts of it that look like buildings, like there's, maybe not skyscrapers, but very tall buildings on the top of this thing. And then other things just look like circles and ellipses and just, just geometric patterns. It's like, it's it's quite a jumbled mess. I'm not crazy about it myself, but, yeah. you know. Well, did you get the Borg vibe uh, when you saw, like, the outside of the ship? I mean, uh, it, yeah, it doesn't look yeah, as I cool guess. as the Borg, but it, yeah. I, I kind of got that vibe, especially how powerful it is. Yeah. Uh, but they don't they don't do anything small. I mean, look at the size of of the robot. <laughs> he is huge. It's now, just ridiculous. What, why? Why did he? I mean, it, it. I'm not. I'm not sure that they had uh, Kirk and Spock directly next to some of these people, uh, because maybe the people are huge. I don't know. But why do you build such a big, huge robot to do all this stuff? Right. Now, the people are really small compared to the robot, because if okay. you look on okay. page 20, they look proportionate, more like what Kirk would be. Okay. Well, yeah, and, right. Okay, so I, I just don't know why they had to make it so, so darn big. No. Let me let me tell you my mindset when I was reading this. Uh, you know, I'm reading the first page. Uh, I know that the story is called, or at least the little teaser on the cover is called uh, Meeting of the Minds. I'm reading it. They they're getting probed, and Kirk and Spock are kind of looking at each other, and it looks like they're being, um, you know, probed at the same time with this aura, uh, this this aura around both of them. And I'm thinking, oh God, don't be a Freaky Friday episode where they switch. <laughs> <laughs> and then I turn the page, and I'm like, oh no, it's a giant robot. Oh, thank God, <laughs> this is better. Yeah, with with a geodesic glass dome cranium. Yeah, what is yeah. that? I I I think it's his neural net. But... Maybe he has an arboretum up on top of his head and, and needs that to keep the uh, the temperature just right. Oh, probably, probably. So it's a plant based <laughs> matrix of a mind. It's, it's yeah, sure. It's, why not? It's an interesting design. I just don't know why they made it so fracking big. Yeah, it's silly. Silly. Uh, uh, I, the artwork? Artwork reminded me a lot of Gold Key. Uh, yeah, Spock yeah. has the big gigantic ears like he does in the Gold Key stuff, so I was getting a lot of Gold Key vibe on this one. Interesting. Yet yeah, now that you mention it, I agree. And, uh, you know, in some cases... In some cases, things are... are uh, they, they they apparently made some effort at making things a little really realistic looking, um, but in other cases, uh, I mean, especially on page four, Kirk, there's there's like a close up of Kirk, um, when he sees how big the inside of the planet ship is, you know, when they were able to move out into that like hallway, that that open area, um, where he's like really surprised and stuff, and that does not look like like sh- the shat at all. Right. Yeah, it's in 14, bottom oh, yeah, page 14. And and definitely in that picture, Spock's got uh, Yoda ears. But look but look at Kirk's – look at the size of Kirk's chin. Yeah. I mean, jeez. His chin's almost as big as those big bug eyes that he has that are yeah. popping out of his head. Right, and it looks like he's got a little cleft or something going. It's, yeah, uh, it's weird. No, it's, 
He looks like Bruce it's Campbell. Not Kirk. Yes, yes, he does look like Bruce Campbell. That's funny. But uh, overall, artwork I was not thrilled with on this one. No, but I mean, it, it's still higher quality than anything you'll see in the comics. But yeah, in the comic strip, you mean? Comic strip. Sorry. Yeah. I meant comic strip. Yeah. Now, when they were escaping and Spock was able to mathematically predict which beams to crawl on and where to go to find that other broom, right. was that supposed to be real or was that a holographic uh, representation as well? Because after Spock dies, uh, the robot kind of acts like that was a hologram and it was there to have Spock die. Oh, I think it was a purposely set up situation. But you think uh, it was it was the real inside of the ship, not a hologram? Oh, I don't know. I really don't know. Does it matter? I mean, I, I'm not really sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he it, uh, at the very least, if it was a real hall, he had something to do with manipulating that that strut they were crawling on. Right. And if it was hologram, well, he was able to manipulate that too. So, but that was obviously a setup. Right. I do like some of the uh, lines that both Kirk and Spock have after they're resurrected. Uh, it's just kind of funny because, you know, well after this story was written, uh, you know, both characters have died and come back in various continuities. So it was just – I was getting a chuckle out of that because, you know, Kirk was brought back by the Borg similar to how he was brought back here. Oh. And Spock obviously so in dies. some novel, in some novel that 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 Shat wrote. Yeah, he... <laughs> which almost no one's read. Everybody's read it. I. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, it's just it's just funny that this story came out well before Wrath of Khan and before that uh, Star Trek: The Return novel. Right. And in both of those scenarios, they get brought back to life. Last thing I have to say is I liked how Scotty put McCoy in his place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, what what was the deal? I mean, McCoy was being, a, you know, a bit of a... Hmm. He was very emotional that his two friends may be dead. And he, well, he was acting way out of character. Oh, he was out of character, totally. I mean, uh, I mean, he, he is, he's coming out and saying... Scotty's incompetent, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, well, where's that coming from? Yeah, and I, and I do think Scotty handled it quite well. Yeah, yeah, you're even per- though you can you can look at the look on his face, Scotty's pissed. Yeah, but I don't mean drunk. I thought he was just biting his lips so that he didn't say anything worse. Yeah, or that he was you know upset that he had to actually say that to you would you would assume McCoy and Scotty are probably friends, pretty good friends. Oh yeah. And, you know, Scotty's obviously just as upset about the two dying as, as McCoy would have been. Right. He just handles it a little more maturely. Exactly. He still has 400 and some odd people to worry about. Scotty does now. 400? Are there 400 on this? On uh, the refitted Enterprise? Isn't that the number? 400 and some some. I I thought it was two hundred and something, but maybe that's an old stat from the original ship. I don't know. Yeah, we went over this before. Yeah, and I'm because they, they had they had one number on Pike's Enterprise, 
They had another number on Kirk's Enterprise, and then was there yet another? I, I know, I know the the D class Enterprise was it was a different number too, but I don't know. Four hundred, sure, why not? He's got a lot of people to worry about. Exactly. All right. Anything else? Nothing. All right. So we want to jump into the Star Trek Untold Voyages number five. And as previously said, this is the last of the series. So this series, I think, was purposely written to be a five-issue series. Um, Issue one was right after the movie, and then two was a year after that, three was a year after that, four was a year after that, and five is, you know, the last issue or the last mission of their five-year mission before they make it back home and right before the events of Star Trek Two. So it's kind of cool how this one was – this whole series was done. Yep. So this uh, issue is uh, is called Odyssey's End, aptly named, I think. Uh, it came out July 1998. Uh, the writer was Glenn Greenberg, penciler Michael Collins, inker Keith Williams, colorist Matt Webb, letterer Chris Illopoulos, and editor Tim Tahoy. So the cover shows some faces of McCoy, Kirk, and Spock in an energy field a uh, type beam emanating from the belly of a flying saucer type ship and the words on the on the cover actually say close encounters uh and it's very fitting since the style of this flying saucer is is very close encountery looking from the movie uh also on the cover there's a shot of the enterprise and what looks like a severely damaged old old style constitution class starship so the story starts with the crew of the Enterprise uh, heading home for the end of their second five-year mission. Uh, the crew has gathered in a reception or recreation room to celebrate the end of this mission. Uh, they're also celebrating the promotion and transfer of Chekhov, who is now going to be Lieutenant Commander on the Reliant. Everybody's talking about the new uniforms that have replaced the old pajamas. And there's discussion between Kirk and... Spock and McCoy about what's in store for Kirk once he arrives to Earth. Uh, during the reception, Kirk is forced to leave uh, when he is contacted by Admiral Nagoya's replacement, a gentleman by the name of Admiral Morrow. Kirk takes the call privately in his quarters, and, and it goes pretty much like we've seen over the last few weeks in the comic strip. Uh, the Admiral wants Kirk to take an Earth-based assignment, and Kirk wants to keep the Enterprise so bad that he threatens to retire. Uh, Morrow asks Kirk to spend the rest of the the trip to Earth thinking about what he needs to do or what he wants to do and not to do anything too terribly rash. Meanwhile, Spock is having a conversation with Savick. Uh, she is showing some emotions and saying that she really looks forward to seeing Spock when he comes to visit on Vulcan. Once they're finished talking, Kirk visits Spock to thank him for all the hard work that he's done over the last 10 years. Before Kirk can give McCoy the same gratitude, Kirk is summoned to the bridge. Uh, it seems that they're picking up a distress call from the USS Yorktown. 
the Enterprise alters course to respond to the call, and we get a, bre a brief explanation about Yorktown's mission. It is a training vessel, and it's an old Constitution-class vessel that has not yet undergone the refit. They eventually arrive to the coordinates and find a severely damaged Yorktown firing at a huge flying saucer. Uh, the alien craft is many, many, many times larger than the Federation ships, so very similar to the giant planet-sized ship that we saw earlier, except this one is... Uh, like the old school flying saucer look. A quick scan of the Yorktown shows that there are only 57 life signs aboard out of a, a crew complement of 428. Uh, the crew, the alien craft is ignoring the Enterprise. Uh, Kirk takes the opportunity to beam a landing party over to the Yorktown. As they materialize on the bridge, they find bodies all about and a young cadet in the command chair. Uh, the cadet quickly explains that the mothership was abducting the population of Lycos 5. The alien ship originally was ignoring the Yorktown, but when they tried to stop a load of captured Locrosians, I guess you would call them, uh, they were attacked in force with some unbelievably powerful weapons. The captain of the Yorktown and the senior bridge officers were quickly killed, and the cadet took over command and continued to press the attack. Hearing this, Kirk berates the young boy for not retreating. Scotty informs the captain that all systems on the Yorktown are shutting down, including life support. Kirk orders the remaining cadets and the rest of the crew to return to the Enterprise, while Kirk, McCoy, and Spock plan to beam to the planet itself to further the investigation. As Rand is beaming them off the Yorktown, there is a malfunction, and the three transporter patterns are gone, uh, the three patterns being Kirk, McCoy, and Spock. The trio find themselves rematerializing on the alien craft. They are hit with paralysis beams as the aliens come creeping out of the shadows. Uh, again, these aliens are very close to the Close Encounters slash Area 51 looking. Uh, they're large, black, almond-shaped eyes with smooth, smooth gray skin. Uh, and in that Area 51, maybe I should have said Roswell. So very, very close to what you would see if you went to visit Roswell, as, as far as what an alien should look like. Uh, Spock tries to communicate with the creatures. Uh, they don't communicate back, but they do release him from his stasis beam and take him away. The other two are tortured with some powerful shocks. Spock is taken to what looks like a cross between a throne room and a ship's bridge. There, the alien leader starts to communicate with Spock telepathically, and they perform some sort of mind-meld probe to learn more about Spock. Kirk soon awakens in a dark space. He thinks that he is dead or dying, uh, due to the torture. Out of the blackness, three figures approach him. One is Edith, who we've seen from the Guardian of Forever episode of the original series. Uh, one of them is Gary Mitchell, who we've seen in the episode Where No Man Has Gone Before. And the third is Kirk's brother, Sam, who I assume is George Samuel Kirk Jr., uh, which is the only brother that I know of. He's got two. He does have to? Or they present they presented to. Uh Operation Annihilate, I think, is the episode in which uh his brother was killed. 
and I think that was Sam. But I think they had a reference in a different episode to a, to a second brother. Really, I thought he only had the one. Hmm. Uh, I think he really does only have one, but they have referenced two different brothers. Okay. All right. Fair enough. All right. So the uh, the Edith character shows him that uh, there's no one to love him, or that he has no one to love. Uh, Sam is there to show him that he has no family, though Kirk does mention that he has a son that he's never met. Uh, and Gary is there to show him how his legacy, uh, as be as far as being a maverick, uh, is always going to be um, what he is remembered from. So he's always going to be remembered as being a shoot first, ask questions later. Um, so obviously these three revelations are quite upsetting to Kirk. Um, Kirk and Spock briefly touch consciousnesses, and this brief touch is able to break Kirk out of his illusion. He awakes on a table with three aliens around him trying to probe his mind. Uh, they are able to, or he is able to grab his phaser and stun two of them, and he holds the third hostage to get more information on the location of McCoy and Spock. Uh, he is able to free McCoy, and he contacts Sulu aboard the Enterprise. Sulu informs him that the mothership is moving towards the Romulan neutral zone. Kirk orders Sulu to keep pace with the mothership and demands the, his alien captive to take him to their leader. Once they arrive on the bridge, they find Spock. Spock then explains the origin of the aliens, uh, who are now called the Abductors. The, abduct the Abductors come from a planet... Or actually, the abductors go from planet to planet to scan life forms and try to find planets that were seeded, uh, seeded with life from the long-lost alien race called the Pre Preservers. Uh, this was alluded to in the original series episode, The Paradise Syndrome. The, abduct the abductors want to remove these seeded races and allow the planets to evolve naturally. They also discover, uh, or the crew also discovers, that these are indeed the same aliens that many people from the 20th century on Earth claim to have been, uh, claim to have seen. Uh, the, uh, the abductors tell them that they're heading towards Romulus because they feel like Ro the Romulan-Vulcan split was done due, due to the preservers thousands of years ago. The crew knows that any attempt to reunite Romulans and Vulcans will result in a war between the Federation and the Romulan Empire. Kirk orders the Enterprise to move ahead of the mothership and block its path. Uh, he tells the aliens that they will have to mow over the innocent people of the Enterprise in order to continue their path towards Romulus. Uh, the ploy works, and the abductors do not destroy the Enterprise. Uh, not only do the aliens not go to Romulus, but they vow that they're going to return home and replant all the species that they've abducted over the years uh, to the various planets that they abducted them from. So it was a very good, uh, bold move on Kirk's part. Uh, there's an epilogue where Kirk tells McCoy and Spock that he has accepted the Admiralty once they return home. He will be overseeing training and has requested that the Enterprise be uh, – he requests that the Enterprise replace Yorktown as a training vessel. Also, he asks Spock to stay on as captain and McCoy to stay on as medical officer. Uh, they discuss that the crew, for the most part, will be staying together with the exception of Chekhov uh, going to the Reliant. 
And the final page is the Star Trek mantra about exploring new worlds and civilizations with some nice shots of the crew. And the final panel has the Enterprise blasting into warp with the words, never the end. Not bad. Yeah, it was a good one. I like that. Uh, the ending, I thought, was a little too simplistic. Cause, well, yeah. Because, you know, I, it's a three-dimensional <laughs> universe. The ship could have just pitched down 45 degrees and just totally uh, bypassed the Enterprise altogether. Not just stop and say, oh, you're right. At the last second. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the part it, I didn't it, like. Yeah. Uh, the part I didn't like is... These are pretty advanced beings. I mean, they've been around for, what, millions of years? It's like very long-lived. They've been doing their thing for a long time. I mean, this has been undoing what the um, what uh, preservers? Preservers, the... yeah. Yeah, okay. So undoing what the preservers have done. I mean, they've been doing this for a long, long time in many, many worlds. And then all Kirk has to do is get his uh, debate captain thing going and <laughs> and explain to them how they're wrong and uh, and they just melt and they're just like Ooh. okay you're right you're right Kirk you're right Captain oh my god how could we have thought of anything different yeah yeah uh, that that is that is the one part I don't like other than that it was a good issue I agree and I mean there was a little you know timeline thing that I was a little confused about because I always assumed that the preservers were from millennia, millennia, millennia ago, not just a couple thousand years. So, I mean, they say that they think the preservers split up Romulans and Vulcans about 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Where, you know, in that episode of the original series and other stuff that's talked about the preservers, I always assumed that it was millions of years ago that, that they were around seeding planets and things like that and that they weren't even around anymore so and and, well, and maybe that's just me you know my misunderstanding of when the preservers were out doing their thing but I think the preservers have been doing uh, I'm not sure you have a point there I had the impression they've been doing it for millions of years but not just a million years ago. Okay, so you you think so they're, they're I, still I out there? The, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, unless they they stopped at you know at some point between Vulcan and now, which is possible. It's just that if they've been doing that for mil, you know a million years, you know why should they stop after uh, after they did Vulcan? Well, and, and I don't anyway. think they did Vulcan. I, I don't buy that Vulcan, uh, the preservers had anything to do with. Vulcan and Romulan. Well, th there's definitely nothing that talks about that. I, I'm, this is the first come up I he I've heard there being any kind of external tampering with that that genesis. Exactly. Yeah, uh, and and they don't actually come out and say it. They just say that the preservers, yeah, or sure. they say the abductors think that that might be what happened. Right. Um, but, but yeah, and like I said, it might just be my, you know, when I watched that episode of the original series, I always just assumed that the preservers are not around anymore and that they, you know, they did all this stuff millions of years ago. But, right. But maybe, and maybe I'm just reading into something that is not there. So which, which episode was that? I want to look that one up. The Paradise Syndrome. The Paradise Syndrome. Okay, I, I remember the, um, 
I remember the title. I just don't remember the uh, what happened in the episode. So that's where they talked about the preservers. Interesting, right? Okay, and, and the preservers have been talked about in, in other stuff, but that's that's the first. Well, thing. Uh, the preservers. I mean, are, you remember the episode of Next Gen, where you know Picard is just running all in the Enterprise, are running all over the galaxy, and then in the end, they some Klingons, I think some Romulans, they all come together on a planet and they see a recording from the first beings that had human form right or human like form so this was kind of the start you know they're they're shot at explaining why you know most planets they go to people have two arms and two legs not budgetary constraints in the original series oh no it's because these original proto humanoid uh race seeded the galaxy um and then branched off and became Vulcans, Romulans, Klingons, Earth people. Right, but were those those weren't. So how does how does that jive with the preservers? Well, were those or does it? Were those preservers? I thought they were something else. I I'm not saying they were preservers. I'm just asking how that all that jives. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I think so. The... Maybe the pre- maybe the preservers came after this other proto race. Right, I, I would That's think probably. so because uh, the preservers that that. And I, I might be misremembering, but that episode with the preservers had something to do with uh, Native Americans were taken off of Earth so that their heritage or would not or something would not be would still be able to live on even though they were. Mm. And it was mm. that one where Kirk loses his memory and falls in love with a, right. a Native American girl. Right, and there's that big old statue or something where some of the action exactly. is there. Yeah, I remember that. Right. Okay. Yeah, so the preservers aren't actually in it, but I think that's why they ex- that's how they explain set them up. they got there. Yeah. Okay, I got you. Um, instead of another lame um, parallel development story, these preservers picked them up and uh, and deposited them. Okay. Right. Yeah. Now the preservers, the race, have been mentioned in. And other, other Star Trek novels and things like that. Uh, in the expanded universe. Yeah, and one of them being, you know, your favorite continuity, the Shatnerverse, where <laughs> a resurrected uh, Kirk and Picard uh, have to deal with uh, the Preservers and the Mirror Universe version of Kirk. <laughs> Has everything. Has everything. Exactly. Even two Kirks. That's great. Two Kirks in the twenty fourth or twenty fifth century. Twenty fifth. Twenty fourth. What is? Okay, it's a next gen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time yeah. frame, right? Yeah, two Kirks. Twenty fourth. Twenty fourth century. Right. Anyways, but anyways, like I said, that's probably my misunderstanding as far as when the preservers were actually going around doing stuff. Huh. Uh, my big deal with this story is why the aliens have to be why they have to try to justify that oh these were the aliens that were on earth in the 20th century right. abducting people and probing them and things like that well they certainly didn't have to I, I, I thought it was kind of interesting that they took that on too I mean this whole issue seems to be something that tries to tackle um, explaining an awful lot of stuff and completely teeing up the uh 
Wrath of Khan. Right. It, it's definitely like a retcon type comic or or whatever. Like this is the bridge between what you've seen in Star Trek the motion picture and what you'll see in Star Trek Two. Right. Um, but but yeah, I just I don't I don't understand why I I, I guess I can't buy into these you know Area Fifty One Roswell looking aliens being real and it being weird for uh or being unique to Kirk or that he's surprised that these aliens are real cuz i mean he deals with aliens every single day so <laughs> why would these aliens suddenly be a surprise for them you know what i'm saying yeah well they are a little bit more different from humans than most of the aliens you see in the star trek universe especially the original TV series, because again, they didn't have that big a budget. Yeah, so the big difference is that uh, they don't wear clothes. <laughs> well, and they're, I mean, they're basically, <laughs> they're, they're, a human being could not get into a costume and become one of these guys. You're right. Because it's just too too small and spindly. Yeah, you would have to have some CG work. Exactly. So exactly. this would have to wait until, you know, the Enterprise TV show. Before they could pull off these aliens. Yeah. Anyways, I just find so it, I I just find it funny that you're in a universe where aliens are day to day occurrences, and then you're gonna throw in oh well in the twentieth century these aliens were here, and it'd be a big deal. I mean it in the well, in the Batman comic books they did the same thing. There was a one shot called Batman Abduction, where he yeah. gets abducted by these same looking aliens. Yeah, and I remember at the time I bought it. Oh, that's pretty cool. He's going to get abducted by aliens. And then I thought about it for a second. I'm like, Batman deals with aliens every single day. Superman, Martian Manhunter, Starfire, Hawkman, Green Lanterns. Every day he's dealing <laughs> with aliens. It shouldn't be a big deal for him. <laughs> but it, 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 in the story, it was. It was like, oh my god, I got probed by an alien. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I just that just kind of annoys me. Yeah, but anyways, plus we know that the Roswell aliens were Ferengi, anyway, so I don't. <laughs> Was that a Deep Space Nine episode? Yeah, Deep Space Nine episode. Okay, I, I remember that one, kinda. I thought the artwork was nice in the comic. Artwork's really nice, and I love the uniforms. Yeah, the uniforms look good. Um, the ship looks good. High quality stuff. Like it. Um, everybody's a little bit more realistic, and they look like the actors. Love that. Um, I think they look a little bit thinner. I mean, of course, McCoy was always thin, but um, I think I think sh the Shat looks pretty thin. Uh, but at least they, you know, at least like the previous comic. I mean, they 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 made Kirk look like Captain America or something. <laughs> I mean, he just he just had this huge physique. So I I, I like this was a lot more realistic. I like right. That. I will agree with you. Uh, I like uh, how McCoy's whining about the new uniforms. Yeah, he whines uh, about everything. He whined he about. He whines a lot. He whined about I, the old uniforms, and now he's whining exactly. about the new uniforms. He, he, on Journey to Babel, the original second season uh, episode, yeah. he whined about the, the 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 formal uniforms were killing his neck. So <laughs> you know, this looks like the exact same thing done again, but now for the new uniforms. Yeah. Uh, and I like how they mention about uh, he liked the old ones because they're kind of comfortable like pajamas. Because they kind of look like pajamas. <laughs> they were pajamas. I like that. 
<laughs> yeah, I liked it too. Yeah, I, I uh, it was good. It was a good joke. Yep. Uh, um, I'm very happy that I, I, I felt that as I was reading through the story, especially at the beginning when Kirk was basically saying, you know, you know, get out of my face to uh, to the new uh, admiral uh, replacing Nagura. Mm-hmm. Um, basically saying, hey, I'll quit. I do not want, I don't want to come back to Earth. I want to stay on the Enterprise. Um, I definitely got the feeling that, man, you know, maybe Spock wants to be promoted to captain for a while. I don't know. You know, it's like, you know. And and sure enough, I, I, I think one of his motivations, although obviously he was given many plenty of motivations, is to, uh, you know, let Spock be the captain, you know. Let's let some promotion going on. You think so? Because I think I thought I that think so. they really played off his motivations as being very selfish, uh, which well, I thought was weird. Because you're trying to portray that, you know, he he's doing this for the greater good, but in the end, it was just because you know, I don't want to be remembered this way. I want to be able to, you know, shape all these people to be like me and. I want to make and sure set, that the Enterprise set the story is, straight. Yeah, and I want to make sure the Enterprise is still right there at my beck and call. So really, Spock. I mean, he basically says, "Spock, you'll be captain, but you'll always be at my beck and call." <laughs> <laughs> and McCoy, oh, come on. I know you wanted to retire earlier, but I want you here. I'm not going to be here, but I want you here when I want you. It just seems. I, I didn't get that. I I didn't. I think you're taking it a little bit extreme. Well, you and, and yes, I will agree that my that my thing that he was also given Spock, the room to grow into, uh, you know, to to step up and be captain as he as he just justly deserved, um, all those years <laughs> as first officer. You know, come on. Um, I and may, maybe I was just reading that into it because that's what I was thinking uh, at the beginning. It's like, God, give somebody a chance. You're just being a glutton, you know, holding on to the Enterprise forever. Right. But maybe I'm just reading it into it. Well, I mean, Spock's been on the Enterprise longer than than anybody. Yep, I agree. Yep. But I do like how he says, you know, I I never wanted command. Um, to kind of explain why, maybe he has it. He didn't get it before Kirk. Right. So, anyways. Besides, he's an alien. What do you want? Yeah, they have weird values. Exactly. I mean, didn't they say something in one of the movies about uh, about the Federation being human-centric or something? Or <laughs> a, a human's club or something? I right. Think yeah, that thing that's been in... And, like... Deep Space Nine and things like that. Yeah, is that was that it? Deep Space Nine. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. Movies, but probably. But anyways, it was a good issue, um, and I think it it properly closed out this five year five year mission. Yes, especially with that last page. Yeah, so they go through the whole space, the final frontier, all that goodness. Right. It was good. Yeah, I liked it. A fine way to cap the series. Okay. So, knowing how great that that ending would have been for the series, uh, let's go ahead and read the Marvel or the comic strip. <laughs> the final comic strip. Now, um, 
This one, which is U.S. comic strip number 20, that ran from um, October 17th, 83, through uh, December 3rd, 83, and it was written by Jerry Conway and Dick Kulpa. Uh, this one is a little different. This is a, a very different story, and this has nothing to do with the ending of the... Uh, uh, of, of this in-between time frame. It just is a standalone uh, story. Although there is a nice little thing at the end with what's on a t-shirt. So, let's get going. A kid around 12 named Malcolm is playing a video game that looks like asteroids but substitutes the asteroids with attacking spaceships. He is close to breaking a record. Could this be some something that would come in handy later? The time period is somewhere probably around 1983, I'd say. A second kid named Joey comes in behind and hits Malcolm on the back, ruining his concentration to the point that he loses uh, breaking, uh, loses the game and misses uh, getting uh, a best score. The two leave the arcade, and while walking down the street, hear a familiar sound down an alley they are passing. Kirk, Spock, and Scotty have just beamed down. The kids recognize them immediately, and it is not hurt that there is a Star Trek poster behind Kirk's head in one of the panels. The kids ask for autographs. The landing party acknowledges that somehow these kids from the past inexplicably know who they are. Joey, apparently the brighter of the two, says they should get out of there since these guys appear to be the real thing rather than actors. As they turn tail to run, Kirk and Spock say their mission success requires complete secrecy. The kids run at warp speed down the street and run into a county mountie, complete with Smokey the Bear hat. The cop asks them to tell the cop asks them to tell the full story, when suddenly Spock comes up behind him and does the Vulcan neck pinch thingy. Spock brings the kids back to Kirk and Scotty on a rooftop. Malcolm says, if they are real, they want to go with them to the Enterprise. Joey says no way uh, that he wants to do that because uh, this thing is real and Spock has real pointy ears. Kirk lamely says he has no choice but to bring them up. Personally, I think they overlooked the possibility of phasers set to disintegrate. They all beam up, and at first the kids are stoked to be on the real Enterprise until Kirk tells them their knowledge of the future means they will not be able to return to Earth, at least of this time period. Joey was right about not being as excited about the whole deal as Malcolm. When Malcolm is told the Enterprise has journeyed back to the 20th century to shoot down a NASA shuttle, he goes ballistic and says he won't let Kirk shoot down a shuttle. Spock neck-pinches the kid to shut him up. Kirk explains they have to do it to avoid the deaths of half the population of Florida due to a microbe that enters the open shuttle Icarus's bay doors. McCoy takes the boys to the infirmary. McCoy continues to explain to Malcolm why they need to shoot down the Icarus. In the meantime, Joey uses McCoy's own hypospray to knock him out. They put on ill-fitting adult uniforms 
and make their way to the shuttle bay. They are greeted with queer looks from multiple crew members until finally someone calls the bridge. Kirk and Spock race down to the shuttle bay in time to see the boys take off in a Jetsons-looking shuttle, complete with clear-domed roof. Same one we've seen in the, in the past several comic strips. Malcolm tells Joey it's like piloting a ship in the video game. Spock and Kirk get into a parallel dimensions discussion that inexplicably leads them to the possibility that in this parallel version of the universe, the microbes needn't be as virulent as it is where they came from. Spock uses the sensors to confirm the microbes are there, but also discovers they age more rapidly in this reality. So by the time the shuttle touches down, they should be dead and harmless. Hooray! They don't have to destroy the, destroy the Icarus. However, the kids find flying a real shuttle is not as easy as playing a video game. They enter the Earth's atmosphere and begin to burn up. Mr. Sulu uses tractor beams to pull the boys back up to the ship. The kids are brought to Kirk, who starts to read them the riot act for stealing the shuttle, but he tells them they did what they thought was right, and in the end they were right. He shakes their hands and they transport and they he shakes their hands and they transport the kids back to Earth. The kids ask why it's no problem returning them to Earth now, and Kirk tells them as they're beaming down that no one that without the shuttle exploding, no one would ever believe them. Malcolm says he wants people to believe him, but Joey tells him it's too late. They go to the arcade and play some more video games with Malcolm wearing a t-shirt that says Star Trek Forever or Star Trek Lives. End of comic strip. Yeah, so this was it was good. Parallel Earth type thing um, and kind of breaking that fourth wall um, and letting the time? the re- reader oh. be kind of a, a participant. You know, that, yeah. that they're kind of in on it, that we're now in your universe, reader of this comic strip. Um, we're not in our universe kind of thing. Okay. But when you say breaking down the fourth wall, I mean, none of the characters are talking to the audience. None of the characters are talking to the audience, but right. it's okay. definitely built that we're we're the real people from from the TV show that you watch, which which is right. kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it, when I first leafed through this this comic and saw that the main characters were two kids that at times were kind of mouthy. It's like I was thinking, and video game players, and and it's in like 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 a relatively contemporary stuff, at least contemporary for when it was written uh, back in in the eighties. I was thinking, oh my god, how lame! It's like uh, it's like Wesley Crusher, but much worse. <laughs> so, but you know, maybe it's because my expectations were significantly lowered. But when I actually got in and read it, eh, I kind of liked it. You know, it's not perfect. You know, it's it's lighthearted. It's you know, you know, it's it's nothing too heavy and serious, except for blowing up a shuttle. Um, and and I ended up liking it. Yeah, the whole blowing up the shuttle thing I thought was was odd and maybe some, you know, ill-timed because the Challenger blew up in what 86? 
Uh, I think it was after this was written, yeah. Yeah, it was after this was written, but uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Challenger was a fairly new shuttle, and it started around this time. So in the late 1983 was when the Challenger was first starting its, you know, missions. Okay. So I don't know. I just thought it was kind of weird that this comic book was coming out the same time that the Challenger was first going up into space. So, you know, you buy a newspaper, it's going to have this comic strip and some exploits of the real star, uh, space shuttle Challenger, and then obviously its ultimate fate is... It, it just, it's just, I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> For me, it is. Right. I mean, it's the same thing as, you know, you know, comic strip, comic books always have to kind of walk that thin line that you never know when something you're writing about in a fictional universe is going to happen in real life. Right. Uh, I mean, like, you know, with the issue where Superman meets JFK, which came out a month after JFK was shot. Oh. And, uh, you know, uh, Wonder Woman, her name is Diana Prince. There was a issue where she dies, and the right. the cover of that comic book says Diana Prince dies. Oh, and it was came out the same month that Princess Diana died. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, well, I mean, you, you know, God, you can't do anything about that. There's nothing you could do about it, but Especially again, that one. It's just, it's just like you know, you know, if you're trying to make your world seem like a like the real world like like this was this was saying we're in your world and you know we don't have a space shuttle Icarus but they were talking about NASA they're talking about space shuttles and things like that and that they're going to have to destroy one of them right right I don't know maybe I'm reading too much into it I just just I think you are I just thought it was a little yeah, look, morbid look, look, looking looking at things uh in hindsight like that uh definitely casts a different uh, light on things than were originally meant when it was written and originally gathered from the audience when they read it. Right. So not so now I mean it's an interesting point you're making, but you know. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Anyways. So what'd you think about the the costumes that they decide to wear to come down to Earth in? Uh oh, come down to Earth in? Yeah, because... with the, the T shirts? Well no, Spock McCoy or Spock Kirk and Scotty. Oh, oh, oh what what the, oh what what the crew comes down in? Yeah. Uh well let me look at them again. Uh they they look like pretty contemporary things. I I remember Kirk looking pretty pretty schnazzy. Um uh, Kirk's, what was Kirk's he wearing a Han Solo costume. No. Look at it. No, no, no. Oh, let, me, let me look at it. I did not take it as that at all. Oh, well, kind of, but oh, come on. <laughs> so he's so he's got a vest. He's He's got an open front vest on. Right. And he's got hang glider uh, collars. Just like Han Solo. Uh, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Hey, he, he's got light-colored pants on, though. Yeah, yeah. But they don't make any effort to hide Spock's ears. No, that that is kind of funny, isn't it? Yeah. And and Spock's got like a turtleneck and a sports coat. He looks very, uh, very dashing. Yeah, he does. And then uh, then 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 Scotty just looks like a normal guy. He just he's got t he's just got a a regular collared shirt on. Right. Yep. Now, um, you know, I understand they had to come down. They had to get the boys, and otherwise there wouldn't be a story. 
Right. But I don't really understand why they had to come down just to find out, just to confirm what day it was. I mean, that's the justification they give the kids as to why they beamed down there in the first place, just to find, make sure that they were in the right time zone or oh, timeline or the whatever. exact time time period. Yeah. So, I mean, I was like thinking, well, couldn't they do the same thing by just monitoring the TV stations or radio stations or whatever? Yeah. But, and I, I don't know if the atomic clock signals were going by this time. Maybe not. But if it was, they could have read the uh, atomic time signals. Or they could just check the internet. <laughs> the 1983 internet. Uh, no such thing. Oh, yeah, you're right. Or they could have just... remember Well, how... the beginnings... Maybe the beginnings of it was, was going on, but it wasn't the web. No. Remember it when was you... Like... When we were kids, we could call. There was a number you could call to give you the time yes, and date. Yes, give you the exact time. And then when it beeped, that's when you would set your watch, right? All right. Yeah, exactly. So why didn't they just do that? <laughs> Maybe they didn't have a phone. Oh. I guess so. They had to beam down. Either they could check the newspaper to get the date or they could call that number. Well, there were all kinds of things that that they just – did it didn't make a lot of sense just to just to keep the story going. Well, well I mean, the, the the whole idea that they just had to bring the kids up, um, and do what with them? Kill because them? they saw too much. Well, exactly. I mean, <laughs> take them away from their parents, take them away from their time period, take them into the future when they return. It's like, and you're doing this why? Because they saw you being down. I mean, what they said it at the end of the book. No one's gonna believe you. So it's like, who's gonna believe them? Well, let's let's say the shuttle blew up. Oh, who's gonna believe you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, these kids talk about people beaming down from from the TV series. They're gonna think they're nutcases, no. right? But it wouldn't have much of a story if they interjected that earlier in the story. So yeah, eh, yeah, no. And I mean, the kids are able to fly a shuttlecraft, and McCoy is stupid enough to leave loaded hypos everywhere, so that yeah, the kids just like, oh, here's a hypo, Boop, poke it in someone's butt. They're down. Well, and it's a and it's a good thing that it was loaded with uh, tranquilizer. It could have been loaded with anything. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, how do they know it was in it? The Andorian blood virus. Bloop. Exactly. He could have had had big hands or whatever that was. Yeah, that's what it was. Oh, oh, you got big hands. Oh, I can fix that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think some of the, some some of the humor in that 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 movie worked. And that's why well. this story works. Yeah. To me, I think Star Trek. You know, at its core, it works because it can be a hardcore sci-fi story, and it can be a light-hearted, more comical type story. And you know, neither one of those counteracts the other one. You can still buy that this is still the same universe. You know, you can have a Trouble with Tribbles episode come right after Journey of Babel, and you don't right. feel, you know, it's not jarring that you're going from a comedy to a, you know, more serious. You know, crime story type story. Sure. So, I mean, that's why I, you know these stories and a lot of the comic strips and comic books they they lean more towards the comical side of it. But I, I can buy it as still being all part of the same universe. Sure. And this one was definitely more on the lighthearted side. Um, I mean, like uh, you know, when I was first reading this stuff, reading the comic strip, and then they were playing uh, video games or something, asteroids kind of thing. I was thinking, oh my god. They're not. They're not going to like somehow in the future 
or it, by the end of this comic book, somehow use their video game playing expertise <laughs> and fight Klingons or something, right? <laughs> or you know, fight off a battle cruiser due to their elevated midichlorian counts. You know, they're not going to do something like that, are they? It's like, okay, they didn't. Good, good. Okay. Yeah. I mean, all they did is end up almost toasting themselves and get Kirk and Spock to think about new possibilities. All right. So good, fine. Okay, I can buy that. So, yeah, and the whole mission itself was pretty weird that you, the Federation would sanction them going back in time to destroy a ship that would then prevent a plague. Right. I mean, wouldn't that be big, you know, temporal prime directive no-no? Well, yeah, and, and how do you know what the effects are of the shuttle blowing up? I mean, it could have... It could have, I mean, because, you know, this wasn't Challenger time yet. You know, it could have had some de- some real detrimental effects to the space program, not to mention all those the astronauts that were killed. I mean, who knows what those people could have gone on to do, what effects they could have had on the, uh, the post-1983 world if they were allowed to live. Well, not only that, but think about all the medical advancements that were probably, you know, an outcome of this big plague might have prepared, you know, their medical expertise to be, you know, at a certain level so that when something else came up that would have been worse, they were already able to combat it and yep. uh but now that they don't have that expertise, you know, something something else comes from outer space kills the whole planet. It kills them off because they've never they've good. never experienced uh extraterrestrial viruses or whatever it was. Right, right. So anyways, yeah, I mean... It's a lighthearted thing. Yeah, a little butterfly yeah, effect. You should, shouldn't take anything too uh, seriously. It's not like they're stealing two whales. No, that was very lighthearted. <laughs> I like that movie. I love that movie. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, and that came out, what, two years after this comic book came out, so it's kind of funny that they... Kind of the same thing. They're going back in time to... Do something. Save the whales. Save the whales or blow up a spaceship. It's all the same. <laughs> it's all the same. I thought it was funny they went back to the Jetsons car again for a shuttle design. I'm glad we're not going to see that anymore. Um... Maybe Gold Key will crank it out for us. <laughs> oh, God, no. Anyway, I, I thought it was pretty cute, the uh, the kids in the big uniforms walking around. It was cute. When I was originally thumbing through this and I saw that picture, I was I had my concerns <laughs> that this was yeah, going to be exactly. silly. Well, and it was. I mean, it was. But they didn't really get away with it. It's like everybody knew that they were two little kids in adult uniforms. Exactly. They still got to the shuttle bay though. Exactly, and used the good doctor's hypo yet again to knock somebody out so they can get to the shuttle. Now, now I gotta ask, how do they know exactly how to get to the shuttle bay? I mean, I understand they know there's a shuttle bay because they used to watch the TV show, but how do they know how to get there? Well, the same reason Justin Long knew how to get to, you know, the Omega Thirteen and and Galaxy Quest. They live it. Ah. Same way you would know how to get to the shuttlecraft if you showed up on the Enterprise. You would. I would be lost. You would think back and go, "Okay, I know that uh, it's on deck 13." Even even though when I was uh, 13 years old or 12 years old, I had Star Trek Blueprints publication. Um, I still think I would get lost, <laughs> big time. 
No, I would have to rely on the next generation where you could just walk up to the wall and say, Computer, can you show me how to get to whatever? And then that little Computer? that little pulsating light would kind of lead you to the right way. Oh. Ah, that was very oh. convenient back then. Was that, was that in the wall? Yeah. It was pulsating light in the wall? Right. Okay. Hmm. And it would just cool. be like, bloop, 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 bloop. follow the line, follow the, the bouncing dot. That is cool. Yeah, and it makes sense. That future stuff. What will they think of next? Exactly. Okay, that's all I got. I can't believe you don't think that the Han Solo costume. Uh, it's Han Solo-ish, but mm, I didn't think it was that. Although I can see where you would think that. Hmm. All right. Well, that's it for the comic strip. Um, we have two time frames to go over in the Elsewhere's stuff. So, hit it. Uh, this. The, the Marvel comic, number 18, came out in February of 82 and would be the last comic book released in the Star Trek universe until February of 1984. So talking about a two-year hiatus on Star Trek comics. Uh, but anyways, February of 1982, uh, the comic strip or the comic book, number 18, was the only one that came out. Um, just real quick, March had a novel called The Prometheus Design. Uh, May had a novel called The um, Adobe of Life, and then July of 82 was Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, novelization in the movie. So aside from, you know, it seemed like 82 was a pretty pretty busy year, even though there wasn't any comic book except for February. All right, so Star Trek Untold Voyages number 5 came out July of 1998, mm-hmm. and that month... Uh, we've already talked about it when we were doing the um, uh, early voyages, but it has uh, the Deep Space Nine novel of the Captain's Table called The Mist and the Voyager novel of the Captain's Table series called Fireship. So, Fireship. Yeah, I haven't read either one of those. I've read two of the Captain Table's books, uh, mm-hmm. but I haven't read the Deep Space Nine or the Voyager one. I'm sure they're good. Uh, the the Deep Space Nine one is by Dean Wesley Smith and Kathleen Rush, or Kristen Catherine Rush. Uh, I think they're a husband and wife team. They write a lot of Star Trek stuff. Huh. And then the Voyager one was written by Diane Carey, who also writes a lot of Star Trek stuff. So, anyways, that's it for this episode. Next time on Star Trek comic book review so next week we're going to read idw infestation (laughs) infestation number one and number two cool and i'll also give very very brief explanations as to what else was going in this infestation crossover which crossed over the idw universe star trek ghostbusters gi joe and transformers (laughs) (laughs) of course so they all get infested with zombies i i'm not gonna say it again but you know what zombies are the bacon of life no (sighs) bacon of literature bacon of literature i guess we would be the bacon of life because the zombies would eat us we would we would be the bacon of the zombie universe yes all right, so uh, that being said, we'll close off this issue, or this episode, episode number 40. Yes. 
And we'll be back next week for episode number 41. With, uh, with some zombie action. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I need to read that other Night of the Living Trekkies before next week, too. Oh, you better better go fast. I know. I've been procrastinating. Yes. All right. Okay. Thanks for uh, taking a listen, everybody. Take care. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.